Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. Because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Hello, everybody. In this episode, I will be in conversation with Marietta Schurholz, a filmmaker who interviewed me in Switzerland for her film. And I, I recorded the conversation as well to use as this podcast because well, I didn't know beforehand I was going to use it, but it really was a beautiful conversation. You won't be able to see the facial expressions, the tears, but it was just a beautiful conversation. I'm really happy to share it with you. Also, I'd like to invite you to visit her website for the film, which is going to be called Reinventing Rituals. And it has some amazing other subjects in it. Clinton Callahan, Matthew Fox, Joanna Macy, Maladoma Somme, I think. Definitely worth checking out. So enjoy the conversation. The core question and the core desire I have is where does courage come from? How do we become more and more courageous? How can we hold more and more fear, anger, sadness, and joy? How can we contain that to make us move. And I have a feeling that rituals and initiations at, some, at times did serve that purpose to allow us to grow. And my questions will all be around that, you yeah. know. Where do you see the role of ritual in today's society? Maybe the role it used to play in the old story. Mm -hmm. Maybe the role it can play in the time of transition where we search step by step. And maybe, yeah, I think that's the core question. That's the core question. I myself am really searching for that. And I feel a lot of disappointment with the way we mark thresholds in our lives, I don't feel they initiate us to something that changes what has been before, like a celebration of a birthday. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the, the, the question to begin with would probably be about the nature of ritual, you know, as you can sense it on an energetic level, and as you maybe can make a transition from what is common understanding of rituals, you know, and what is the level underneath or above, wherever, you know, where it can contain more movement? Okay. I think a lot of people have got ritual backwards. We think that a ritual is something that's a little bit less real than other actions, because it's just a ritual. But a real ritual is something that feels more real than other actions. For example, signing a contract would be an example of a ritual, or the uh, 
quality control procedure that a company has to go through and there's many forms to fill out and meetings to be had, that would be a kind of a ritual because this is really important. This is a, the real thing. Doctor's visit can be a ritual. Um, the biggest ritual in our society, I think, is surgery, which interestingly enough has all of the accoutrement of, of certain ancient rituals, the, the masks, the sanctified instruments, the altered state of consciousness that the patient goes into, the long ordeal that the practitioner must undergo to be allowed to perform the ritual, the ceremonial name change, the document in an arcane language. There's so many aspects of ritual in surgery. There are a lot of rituals around money. You could say that a ritual is the manipulation of symbols to affect reality which seems kind of superstitious, but it doesn't seem like the manipulation of symbols because a ritual gains its power from the story that embeds it. So it doesn't seem like a ritual, it seems real. You might ask a shaman, well, why do you blow sage smoke uh, in the room beforehand? And he says, well, that cleanses the space. And the modern mind thinks, well, you know, that's just symbolic. It doesn't have any antibacterial properties. What cleaning is happening? But when you ask the surgeon why he sterilizes his instruments, he says, well, that's not just a ritual, that there's germs there and the heat destroys the germs and so on and so forth. He has a bunch of reasons. That makes sense in his story of the world. Well, the shaman also has a bunch of reasons that make sense in the story of his world. There's a necessity to do things the way that he does them. It's not, quote, just a ritual. What's happening today, well, we have, our rituals are, they're dying. We no longer fully believe in the story that the rituals come from, and they've become dissociated from their original purpose, and they don't work well anymore, especially the rituals that have to do with life transitions coming of age, coming into warriorhood or elderhood or womanhood. These, these rituals, we still have remnants of them. The 16th birthday, coming out party, things like that. College graduation, maybe. But those don't really feel real. Even when I graduated from university, it was kind of a joke. We didn't take the hats, the caps and gowns seriously. So we have a hunger for meaning and a hunger for ritual, a hunger for the inner content. And so we're searching. Some people borrow rituals from other cultures that still have that uh, meaning and content in their home territory. But when you import a ritual from somewhere else, you're not importing the entire mythology and the entire worldview that embeds that ritual. So the ritual feels fake. It feels like an imitation ritual. And there's a part of your brain that's like, yeah, you know, this is just a ritual. We're looking to the East, we're looking to the West, but I know that there's really no spirit in the East or no, the wind isn't really listening. We have this programming from the mythology that we've grown up in. So we're hungry for new rituals that, that feel real to us. Now, here's an interesting thing. These life passages, these life transitions, the initiatory ordeals, 
and experiences that happen. The, the generosity of the universe is such that even if we don't have a culturally defined initiation, we still will receive those initiations. Maybe not as soon as we would like to, but fundamentally, indigenous initiations are not adding something new to human life. They're not imprinting a new design on the human life. They come from a deep listening to the course of a lifetime, what's supposed to happen. And they participate in that. They contribute to that. They are the ally of a natural organic process. But they're not introducing something new. Therefore, in a more haphazard way, even if you don't get your initiation into manhood or into elderhood, it will come to you in one form or another. And sometimes people have, I mean, I think probably most people know what I'm talking about. Those moments, those, those periods of life where everything falls apart. I mean, that is one key feature of initiations, which is a certain kind of ritual. You're taken out of your normal circumstances. You're taking out of, of the normal reinforcing conditions of your thinking and of your identity and put in an unfamiliar place, an unfamiliar circumstance, so you no longer know exactly who you are. It's new. You don't quite know how to be yourself in that circumstance. So these life initiations that happen spontaneously to us also have that character. Something that seemed so normal and permanent and familiar disappears somehow. Maybe through divorce or getting fired from your job or a health crisis and the ground has been taken away underneath you. Or maybe you travel somewhere and you find yourself in some unfamiliar circumstance and that's a kind of an initiation too. It's hard to make it happen these things happen usually in spite of our best efforts to avoid them. But they will happen. And when they're over, you can recognize that they've happened, that it was actually an initiation because they kind of divide your life into before and after. Not that everything's changed, but something has changed and there's no going back. Other kinds of experiences, they may seem like they change you. You go to a transformative workshop or something, but then you go back to your normal life and you kind of go back to the way you were. But if it's a real initiation, it's like being born. The baby can't crawl back into the womb. Something has irrevocably changed. What comes to mind when I listen to you is in traditional society, they had these, let me say, huge initiation rituals. Like, for example, Malidoma describes it in his book, Spirit of Africa. And there, of course, the initiate really expands and the collective around it, it him recognizes the journey mm -hmm. uh, what you're describing these individual initiations that happen for example with the health crisis uh, it seems like the collective community around you might not recognize but you yourself get in contact with another, I call it also collective, 
with a world of spirit or universal laws or, or something that you feel like you're now more embedded in something. So that's, a, that's something that I feel interested in mm -hmm. because the framework that comes from tradition is it needs, like with a head at the university, it needs the, the group, it needs the community to kind of acknowledge your growth. And it has become fake. And then, then there's this, uh, when you speak about your own initiation in the last month, there's this other form which is truly feels like being initiated. So I don't know what question to make out of that, but maybe you can say something about it. So, yeah. In a way, our society is protecting itself from the effect of real initiations because the places that we get initiated into are not consistent with participation, participation in the world-destroying machine. Can you say that again? It's not consistent? Yes. The places, yes, the places that we are initiated into are not consistent with full participation in the world-destroying machine. When you're initiated into something beyond your ego self and beyond the preoccupations and the fears mm -hmm. of life in modern society, then you're no longer captive of those things. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to conform to the program. Mm -hmm. So these initiatory experiences are kind of a threat to the status quo. And they're certainly not validated, recognized, or supported. Partly, though, that's just because we don't even have community anymore. You know, you were talking about how in, in traditional societies, the whole community recognizes that something's happened to you, that you are now a man, you're now a woman, because you've gone through that. Everybody knows it. That's why some of these weekend warrior initiations don't feel that powerful, because you don't come back from that knowing that you're different and being seen as different. It's not, initiation isn't something that just happens to an individual. It's something that happens to a community, to a collective. So these kind of personal initia initiations that we have through illness, for example, they're still only partially exercising their function. However, there is, as you were saying, a larger community, perhaps an invisible community, or even a visible community that when you go through this dissolving and rebirth, there are people waiting for you who have also gone through it. So your old circle of friends might fade away and you might discover a new circle of friends that validate the perceptions that are native to the initiated state. So it's not entirely true that there's no community to greet us in as an initiate, but it certainly hasn't been fully formed yet. It's kind of latent underneath the surface, and we don't have real social structures yet built around that. So what's happened for probably centuries now is that people are initiated into, say, elderhood or something like that, but then they're sent off to the nursing home, and they don't exercise the social function of an elder, which is to guide the younger people and who are being in the productive phase of life toward uh, a 
true and beautiful expression of their gifts. There's not that, that there's nothing to navigate by for them. The question that comes to mind is what is between the institutionalized ceremonies that might initiate somebody, let me say, we're doing a firewalk or something mm -hmm. like that, and the initiations that happen to you because of things falling apart. I don't know, there seems to be a desire in me that wants to facilitate space or hold space for initiation to happen. Yes, because if you don't have the socially constructed, contained, guided initiations that maybe involve a firewalk, maybe involve, I mean, they can be pretty intense, these initiations. They can involve intense physical pain, prolonged uh, isolation, psychedelic plants, uh, and for some initiations, the outcome is never certain. You might not come back from it. It feels real, like your life is on the line, everything's on the line. In the absence of those, let me put it this way, when we have those kinds of initiations, life doesn't need to fall apart, which can be very destructive. People do things, people so need this initiation that they will unconsciously engineer a catastrophe in their lives in order to be initiated to the next level. The soul's imperative is unstoppable. And if it doesn't receive the medicine that it needs, in one way, it will create it another way uh, with great destruction. So you could say that having these you know, traditional initiatory processes helps maintain the health and stability of the society. Mm -hmm. and, and you don't have to have these crises marital crises, these health crises, and, and the environmental crises, I mean, that's an initiation that we're going through as well. And the environmental crisis is generating all kinds of other crises. So initiation doesn't only happen to individuals. It happens to all beings, including the collective being of civilization. And we're going through an initiation right now where everything we thought we, meaning the dominant culture, everything we thought was normal, real, predictable, um, just the way the world is, that's falling apart. And we don't know anymore. We don't know what's real. We don't know who we are. We don't know the purpose of humans on earth. We thought we knew to rise above nature, to conquer nature, but that project hasn't been going too well. And the paradise of control and domination has become quite obviously a hell. So we're in this initiatory process where the old is falling away. I think not quite yet. We're still at a place where we can cling to the old and deny the reality that we're being shown. That means we will need continued initiatory experiences, continued crises and catastrophes. And each one that comes shakes us loose from the worldview, from the story, from the self that we've been living in as a collective. So this is underway and it will continue 
until we've received what we need to receive. And then when we finally enter that place of humility of, I just don't know anymore. I just don't know who I am. I just don't know what's real. I don't know how to do this. Then the emptiness, the empty space is available for something new to arise. Something can come into that empty space that was always there, but the old structures were keeping it out. And that happens on an individual level and it's happening on a cultural level too. Mm -hmm. For me, a big question is the thing about authority and holding space. Because in traditional rituals, it feels like, or in the patriarchal rituals, there's always the one who knows how to do it. Mostly there's a setup structure, and in a way, it's about domination, about the process, and the result, I don't know. I don't know if there is any result. And then you, you spoke about how people in the lack of believing in their own traditional rituals are seeking for alternatives in different cultures, and they kind of make quotations. But it doesn't really, I don't think it really holds. Also, because it's, again, it's an implementation of something onto something. So whenever I am in situations where I feel like something is needed so we can find more coherence of our forces, the question is who and what is holding space for that? Mm -hmm. Who and what is initiating that? Okay. Yeah, so in a traditional context, there might be, as you say, one person who knows who's holding space, but I think it's more commonly more than one person. It's uh, a group of elders, perhaps, who are qualified because they've gone through the initiation too. However, there's a deeper level too. It's not actually those people who are holding space. The ritual itself is a living being and will enlist the people that it needs to, to carry itself out. And you can feel when you're in that ritual space, you can feel the presence of the living ritual. And you know, if you're the one administering the ritual, you, to, do it, to do it well, you have to be in service to that. You have to be always listening to that. What does the ritual want me to do? That means that you don't necessarily adhere exactly to a prescribed formula. You probably will do things very much as they've been done, but because it's alive, it won't necessarily be exactly the same way each time. When you rely on exact prescriptions, that is only necessary when you've lost touch with the spirit of it. So you fall back on, well, here's the way it's always been done. But a, a living, and, and when rituals become obsolete, that's what happens. The ritual's departed already. The ritual is dead. It's gone. It has left this plane. And all we're left with is the shell, which is the procedures and the instructions. Once that's happened, you can cling to it for a long time, but everybody can feel that it's not really a genuine, authentic ritual. But a living ritual enlists the initiated as its, as its servants and they listen to what's needed. And therefore, it may seem that they're you know, making new stuff up or something like that, but they're not. It's not coming from them. 
they're listening to it. So it's, it's, and I think perhaps in many cases that kind of humility is one of the fruits of being initiated oneself. I don't know why, but it has a lot of resonance when you speak about the ritual being a living being. I just spent uh, two months in Bali, and when I was at a cremation ceremony, it was, it was exactly this feeling. Um, the priest was, you know, there was this gaiety about the whole process because they kind of knew what to do. You know, that was set up, all the steps, what to do, how to the elements dissolve, where the holy water has to come from. And then there were moments where they didn't know, you know, because mm -hmm. the body didn't burn. So they kind of had to navigate, like, what could be the problem? So there was that, there was a certain intuitive creativity about the whole process. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel like repetitive. Although there was a security in it, that what they were doing was based on something profound. And there was something that always comes up again, you speak about listening. Yeah. And that listening, for me, it has a tinge, it has a little ingredient of courage. I think the moment you leave structure as a set that's already predictable, you need to have the courage to step into not knowing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of felt ritual is evolving out of the moment. And it's about kind of expanding your, expanding your awareness, even including dimensions which you might think you don't know, and then kind of navigating to the next. Yes. And that felt, I don't know how to describe it, it felt horizontally connected as well as, and it sounds funny if I say that, vertically connected. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I think the listening, that, that yes. I'd like to explain. The listening, about. yes. Yeah, you said it beautifully. Uh, to really listen uh, requires courage because you are in a state of not knowing. You're letting go of control, and therefore you have to trust. Because when you really listen, you don't know what's going to come. Maybe something that is painful to hear comes, or maybe an instruction comes that you know I've got to do this, and I don't know what it's going to be and what I'm going to lose. So there's, there is truly courage in listening. And you're letting go of yourself. You're letting go at least of your conceptual grasp of the world, your conceptual certainty. There's, there's some humility in it. I've noticed also, I, I used to live in Taiwan, so I could, you know, I've had a little bit of experience. And, and when, I, when I was there, which was the you know, late 80s and, and early 90s, the old culture was still, well, it wasn't intact, but there were there were strong remnants of it, more than remnants. And I noticed as well that rituals were not always solemn. Because, I mean, why wouldn't you be cheerful if you know that it's gonna work? You know, you don't have to be solemn. You just have to follow the ritual. You have to listen to the ritual. You have to do what you're supposed to do. 
And, and I guess sometimes, I mean, some rituals are solemn, but the ones that I saw were in general much less solemn than the kind of imitations of rituals that people do where, okay, this is a ritual, so I've got to be really serious about it. Like, do you, are you necessarily really serious and solemn when you write a check? That's a ritual. No, because you, you know that it's going to work. Your, your reality picture includes that symbolic action, that superstitious belief that by making some mark on a piece of paper that someone's going to give you something from the store, you know, but you don't think of it as a ritual. Yeah. Because rituals are alive and evolving, when people speak of preserving their rituals, they're actually speaking of killing their rituals, holding them in stasis. The only way that a ritual could persist totally unchanged is if the culture and the world story around it persisted unchanged. But that's anti-life. Life doesn't persist unchanged. It's constantly evolving. And there's another kind of courage there to respect our rituals, but also to let go of them being a certain way and to trust in the process of life. I really wonder if control, which is so much ingrained into the to the rise of Western civilization and listening to ritual as a living being to go together. I really wonder if that is possible. What do you think? You know, when you, when you really examine a concept like control and scrutinize it deeply, it starts to get fuzzy. You know, what's the difference between control and um, merely impacting your environment. Do you say that a bower bird that builds a little house is controlling its environment? Well, in a way it kind of is. So I think maybe a better question, instead of saying, you know, to make this binary distinction between controlling and trusting, mm -hmm. it's to say, what is, what is the relationship between inner and outer that we want to step into mm -hmm. between self and other? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's a healthy interaction? There's a, I think he's from, he's Dutch, Arnold von Gennep is a name, who did a lot of research on ritual. Mm. And he marks the different phases of a ritual. Something which he calls a preliminary stage is about purification. And then there is that liminal phase that is where you actually leave behind the known. Mm -hmm. and walk into a space of unity. That is what, what you mentioned as letting go of yourself. Yeah. So that definition of ritual, and then it's closed by integration into the world again. But this, this main phase of a ritual where you open to something that is vaster than what you already know about yourself is... Um, if that is not happening, the ritual doesn't contain any initiation. Yeah. yeah. Because initiation only happens when you change. I mean, you have to let go of the old self in order to, to truly change. So, yeah, obviously, 
And that means that an initiation has to be a little bit dangerous because you're leaving behind comfort and security. You're leaving behind the things that kept you as you are. And even if your life isn't in danger, you're going to die. You're going to, the person who comes out of that is going to be different than the person who comes into it. The person who came, comes into it is going to die. So it's pretty scary. Did your marriage ceremony or ritual work for you in that way? When I got married, you mean? You know, marriage ceremonies are, are, are one of these kind of dying rituals that don't feel authentic anymore. Like when they throw the rice or whatever. I mean, all these ceremonial, these ritual aspects. They feel like, well, we're doing them because we're supposed to do them, but they don't have much inner content anymore. And the, you throw the flowers and the one who catches it is supposed to be the next one who gets married, but no one really believes that, you know. So I think, so when I got married, we didn't do that kind of stuff. And, and we were hungry for a real ritual, something that resonated with the world story that we are tra transitioning into. And there aren't any that are ready-made, and we can't import them from somewhere else. So a friend of ours who's uh, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher officiated our ceremony, and we, you know, put some, we contributed some ideas, and it felt like something happened. Is that the phase we're going through when we invent, reinvent our right. rituals? So you can't actually, you can't go by a formula, I don't think. Maybe I'm going to say two contradictory things. Mm -hmm. The first is that you can't just invent a ritual by following some formula of here's the stages of a ritual and let's do this, let's do that, and, and, and create a ritual. Because... Rituals, real rituals, I believe, come from beyond us. They are their own beings. So instead we could tune into a ritual, listen to a ritual. However, this effort to invent and create rituals is also a type of supplication. It's, it's asking the universe to send us the real rituals. So you might try one and it doesn't quite feel right, and then you modify it and you modify it again, and all of a sudden, ah, there it is. Is that because you finally figured it out, how to create one? Or is that because your efforts and errors were kind of uh, um, a request that if you are insistent enough and you keep asking, then a ritual comes to you? So I think that, you know, in that sense, we can develop, or maybe the best word is we can discover the new rituals. But it's very mysterious. Why one works and another doesn't? Sometimes people improvise a quick ritual and it's amazing. I've done this before in workshops. Other times I try to improvise a ritual and it's just so stupid. It's just everyone's, you know, feels so fake, you know, and, and heavy and it just doesn't work. And is that because I haven't fully comprehended the principles of a proper ritual? Or is that perhaps because there was some arrogance in me or something that was a little off in the ritual that could have come said, no, 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 I don't want to go there. 
you're not ready for me. This isn't a space where I feel welcome. There's very mysterious things going on in, in this interplay between the beings that we call human and the beings that we call rituals. I mean, we're intimate, we're intimates, these two types of beings. It's a very intimate relationship that we have. Say that again with different words. I didn't get that, what we are intimate with. The being that is a human and the being that is a ritual, we have a very special relationship. I can't say too much about it, really, but uh, maybe there's even a process of courtship that goes on. You know, like when you're trying to propose marriage to somebody, you don't just walk up and propose marriage. You, you get to know each other first. You go through a, maybe rituals of courtship. There's still some rituals around that, the giving of gifts. Many rituals involve the giving of gifts. And perhaps then, over time, then she says, yes, I will marry you. The ritual says, yes, I will come to you. And there it is. But it's, it's a special thing for, I mean, you know, and some rituals are very laid back and, you know, not hugely important in life. And they have a very easygoing attitude and they'll maybe come to just about anybody. Uh, but other rituals are very shy and special. And they will only come into a situation that's prepared for them, where they can really do their work. Rituals are like any other being. They want to express their gift. They want to do their work in the world. They want to fulfill their purpose. So they're not going to come to you if there's no opportunity for them to fulfill their purpose. Therefore, to create a ritual quote, create a ritual, but actually it's to discover or attract a ritual, you have to create conditions where the ritual can fulfill its purpose. And that requires sincerity. Because probably the purpose of the ritual isn't to make you look good. It isn't to you know, make you into a spiritual superstar or to benefit you. The ritual has another purpose in mind. So your sincerity in serving that purpose is important. If you serve that purpose, then the ritual becomes your ally and will be attracted to you. I don't know which word you used. Was it serenity? Or sincerity. Sincerity. Yeah. Sincerity. Maybe the word I, I, I would... That's a deep form of authenticity. Serenity. Sincerity, like you mean sincerity. it. Sincerity. Yeah, like, like... Sincere. Yeah, like you actually mean what you say. Yeah. And the purpose of the ritual that you want to create is the truth. You really do want that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, does it involve disarmoring? Now let me give you a, a counterexample. Sometimes I go to conferences and events, and they begin with a ceremony in which they invoke the four elements, and they do this and they do that. Such rituals exist, and their purpose might be to create a strong field for an event. But sometimes there's another purpose that's unspoken, which is to demonstrate that we respect Native culture. 
If that's your purpose, then the real ritual isn't going to come. It's going to feel fake. And I'm sorry to say that I've participated or witnessed, experienced many rituals like that, where it feels like kind of a formulaic invocation of the four elements, and it doesn't have any power. So that might be, a, when, when, you have, when you do a ritual and it doesn't have any power, that might be a symptom that there's a mixed motive underneath it, which means that the ritual couldn't come and occupy the space. That happens sometimes. Well, I guess we all witness these situations and yeah, they feel like doing more harm to the space of ritual than doing good. Because they are something pretended, pretend. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a pretense. And, and, and this takes us back again to the ritual is not, the essence of it is not in the exact sequence of motions that are performed. You could perform the exact same sequence of words and actions one day and it feels real and authentic and powerful. And then you do it again another time. But if the sincerity is not there, if the um, purity of purpose is not there, then the ritual might not come and you're left with just the empty shell. That, that could happen. That doesn't mean that the prescribed actions are unimportant. Those could be you know, an essential part of the body of the ritual. You can't just ignore those. So again, it's a bit of a paradox. I can sense the paradox quite well right now. Because I have witnessed people like Sibon Fusume, when they when she calls the elements, I mean, she really calls them to be here. Yeah. Know, she shouts at them as if they were like lazy bumps who better get here. Right. And she puts she 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 embodies power in that moment. You know. Yeah, she she speaks to them as if they actually existed. Yeah. And if they actually exist, then then you're gonna like 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 if you if you say, I now call upon the spirit of the West. Like if you actually believe someone exists, you don't speak like that usually. You, know, you maybe directly address it. Hey, spirit of the West, uh, are you coming? Oh, you are. Thank you. Like it's you know if you actually are in a world story in which that being actually exists, you can tell, and you're going to speak that way. You might speak with great respect. You might speak irreverently. I mean, you know, I I don't know what the spirit of the West would appear as, but it, it's not necessarily ritualistic if it's a real ritual. I've seen this, you know, in Bali, I've seen this in Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm mentioning her because I feel it's very difficult for us, us, I'm meaning the ones who have been brought up with Christianity, for example, to find the right tone between like humble something really like humble humble which i believe is an ingredient and true empowerment to find the tone between this and to feel when the small hairs really kind of stand up and you feel the energy is is running 
and then to feel, okay, this is not working. This is just not working. Yeah, and that takes some courage too. If it's just not working, say, hey, we're just going to stop. We're not going to do this. You know, the dominant religion that we were brought up in is not Christianity. The dominant religion is the religion of science, which has its own metaphysical assumptions, its own priesthood, its own ethical principles. I mean, it has all of the uh, properties of a religion. And that religion says that if you are speaking to a mountain or to a river or to the wind or any of these beings that are commonly invoked in traditional rituals, you are projecting, you're fantasizing. That programming runs really deep in, in me, for example, so that there's part of me that if I'm trying to do that, there's part of me that's like, who are you kidding? You know, you're not really talking to a being. They're not really listening. And so it feels like I feel self-conscious. And I believe that, again, I'm gonna say two contradictory things. One of them is that if that ambivalence is there, if that inner conflict is there, because part of me does believe it's true, but there's a conflict, then the ritual will not come or not be very powerful. However, there is, the second thing that contradicts the first. There's a kind of a grace that is involved here, and even sometimes beginner's luck, that even if you don't fully believe, because these are real beings, they can come anyway and make allowances. And they'll come a few times. And they'll say, okay, here, I'll help you. I'll give you the opportunity to believe. And maybe you get a few chances and if you still just want more and more proof and you refuse to accept the gift and you want more, come again, come again, prove it some more, then they'll stop coming. But there is a, a grace that, that, you know, sometimes a total beginner can invoke a really powerful ritual. Yeah, I just remember when my mother died, I was in this... German graveyard and I didn't know where to do my ritual without people disturbing other people flowering and watering their flowers and, and I said oh what the fuck I'm just going to do it mm -hmm. and the moment I decided there's hundreds of black huge crawls collected mm -hmm. in a tree above me yeah often it's in those moments of grief in those moments of desperation and despair where you just are at a loss it's in those moments that people often create spontaneous rituals. They just, they're just guided, they know exactly what to do, and they're really powerful and effective. Because you're not trying to impose anything onto it. You're in a deep state of listening. I think the distinction you made that our religion was not Christianity, but science, is super important because in a way it devaluated rituals because right. it devaluated religion it was always second it devaluated certain rituals science devaluated the old rituals that were based in christianity and other religions but it offered its own rituals that we just don't recognize as ritual because those are real those are practical 
Those are based on demonstrable causal effects. So they must not, they must not be ritual. But the things that we call ritual in, you know, in indigenous cultures, in their world, those are also based on demonstrable causal effects. It's no different from the interior view. You know, and we think, well, the ritual of, uh, say, creating a clean room for microchip fabrication, that's not a ritual. We need to prevent dust from getting into the, so we have a, an explanation for it. But it's very much a ritual. Technology, you could say, is a very highly elaborated ritual. And I can talk about, so the religion of science says, oh, but there's a difference. It's called the scientific method where we test things against reality. But that in itself is based on a metaphysical principle of objectivity that allows experiments to be repeatable. And that assumes that the reality outside of ourselves is not affected by our inquiries into it. And that's, you know, a religious, a religious assumption. That's a metaphysical assumption that, you know, is it true or not? It's useful sometimes for certain things. We can create wonders using that religion, using the technologies that come from that religion. The rituals that come from that religion are powerful. It is a powerful set of rituals that we call science and technology. However, it also has its limits. It has things that it can do very well, things that it shouldn't even try to do and create disaster when it does, and things that it just doesn't do that well, but you know, we kind of use it as a substitute for something better, like addressing autoimmune diseases, you know, like it can palliate symptoms a little bit, but you need other rituals that we call perhaps alternative medicine, holistic medicine, to address those things. It's so powerful what you do with addressing a story that that is just the story. It's a narrative. Science has a narrative about something. And if, if this little slot opens where I can distance myself from the complete belief, the other worlds are empowered again as an alternative story. Yeah. And I have a choice. And that choice is not a completely free choice. One of my uh, favorite sayings, a passage written by Ursula K. Le Guin, says something, it's one of her books, she says something like this, the truth goes in and out of stories, you know. What was once true is true no longer. The water has risen from another spring. So we can, what we need to do again is to listen which story is the vessel for the truth now? Where is the truth moving into? I feel that on a collective level for our civilization, the truth is moving out of the story that we've been in, the story of the ascent of humanity, the conquest of nature, the domination of all things. The truth is moving out of that story. Two generations ago, it felt, at least if you were, you know, in the elite or the middle class, at least, you know, it felt pretty darn true. There was some truth there. 
But the truth is moving out of that story. And it's moving somewhere else. Where? I don't know. But I know that we have to, as we go into the space between stories, we need to listen for it. Mm -hmm. Listen for it. And you can hear the ring of truth, it's called. You can hear it. And new rituals come from that. Rituals get their power from their embedment in a story. And by a story, I mean it in a very broad sense. I mean, a story isn't just an interpretation of reality. It's not just a way to conceptually organize reality. Reality is made from stories. This is something that ancient cultures understood. Some of them said, you know, if we don't enact the story of the creation of the world every year, the world will fall apart. If we don't tell the story of how the sun came to be, the sun will stop shining. That seems superstitious to us, except that when those cultures stopped telling those stories, stopped enacting those rituals, their world did fall apart. It was the end of the world. So you could say that the world is not made of facts or things, but it's made of stories, which has an interesting resonance with quantum mechanics, which also says the world is not made of discrete particles, but it's made of information. It's made of relationships, communicative relationships. We call it measurement. Communicative relationships. And that's getting very close to the world is made of story. So I'm not just talking about, you know, fairy tales. Although I don't want to denigrate fairy tales either. Those are potent beings in and of themselves. And storytelling and ritual are so closely united. But I'm talking about everything. Because the way that we tell stories is not just with words. It's with everything we call action, too, in the world. That's beautiful and very potent. And maybe to close, when you say that storytelling and rituals are so closely united, I sometimes thought that rituals and reality is also very closely related. Oh, yes. Yes. Ritual and reality. You know, sometimes people have a psychedelic awakening or a spiritual awakening where they realize it's all just a game. It's all a big drama. I'm trying to think of a way to express this without just saying, without stating it as, you know, a fact that rituals create reality. It's certainly true in, in our social reality, at least it's easy to see, that the entities that we call real in the social world, such as governments, nations, corporations, organizations, these are held together or scaffolded by a network of rituals that are some of them very mundane, very trivial, but together they form the body of that organization. The meeting, that's a ritual. You know, everyone goes and has a meeting and you agree that you're a department. But what is a department outside of that? It's nothing. You know, it's really just a story. But, it's, but the story needs to be enacted. That's how it is. Rituals enact the world. We enact stories. We, we, we become actors in those stories. We occupy the roles that the stories create. So I guess 
Like I'm not actually big on definitions to define a ritual as this or define it as that and to pin down reality. That's part of the whole campaign to own and control the world. But you probably could form a useful definition of a ritual as something that enacts a story. And yeah, that sheds some light on things, I think. So to close it and make it practical, if the old rituals enact that old story, how can we transition from these old rituals, which are actually perpetuating that old story, like, you know, the way we do things, like right. Christmas and birthdays and marriages, and how can we move beyond that as a collective? Yes. How can we move beyond the rituals that are dying and no longer serve and that hold us in the past? Yeah. Well, one way is to stop participating in them or to point out their, their ridiculousness point out their irrelevancy. I remember one time I was I had too many speeding tickets, so I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and take an, a test. And there was 30 or 40 other people had to take the test. And if you pass the test, then you get to keep your driver's license. So I was sitting in that room <laughs> and I said, I just said in a loud voice all of a sudden, I said, they can make me take a test, but they can't make me feel sorry. And what I was doing there, kind of in a playful, unconscious way, is I was pointing out that this isn't real. This is bullshit. This is just some blobs on a piece of paper, and we mark it, and it's, and it's just a ritual, and we don't take it seriously. We don't have to take it seriously. In a sense, I'm saying it's not real. When you say it's not real, it's just a ritual, in our language, we are saying that it's no longer a ritual. It's no longer a real ritual. And when we point out the vacuity, the emptiness, the ridiculousness of these rituals that we still cling to, because they do become ridiculous when they're no longer alive, when they're just a, a form. When we point that out, we delegitimize the rituals and the stories behind the rituals. And in a sense, we begin to shift reality. Not necessarily yet into a new story, but at least out of the old, into that liminal space we've been talking about. Because when the rituals stop working, as I was saying before, the world falls apart. It invokes an initiation. We enter that empty space. That's the space of listening, where we can listen for the new ritual. We can ask for the new ritual. We can hold it in humility. And we can listen for the ring of truth that tells us what's the next story to step into. Like when I go to a birthday party and the guy has bought a lot of alcohol and everybody brought some food and in lack of any commonly shared ritual, there's going to be the birthday cake with all these candles. And there's going to be happy birthday. And to me, I feel it's frustrating for me. There's so much helplessness in creating coherence between the people and listening to the moment and really listening into the life of that person yeah. and transitioning that person from one finished cycle to the unknown landscape of the next something. And I really like, you know, 
it takes me always a lot of courage to destroy this childish game of people blowing out candles. Even blowing out candles doesn't make sense to me. You know, right. so, so in this practical, everyday situation, yeah. why don't we synchronize on a different... I mean, there might be you know, social reasons why you still would go to birthday parties and blow out candles you know, for grandma's sake or something like that, but it's not a real ritual. It's not satisfying. So when I can, I like to not participate in that or disrupt it in some way, offer something else. But often, you know, in our search, we replace that fake ritual with another fake ritual. One, here, let me tell you a way not to do a ritual. It's to work out some symbolism and say, okay, we're going to have this to symbolize you know, the number of years you've been on earth, and that is going to symbolize something else. And, and we, we, we introduce some objects with a conscious symbolism for each one. That is kind of a way of achieving by force what's supposed to happen spontaneously. It's similar to constructing a story that has like this really obvious moral and no subtlety in it. If you've ever read a Jungian deconstruction of fairy tales, sometimes it's amazing the, the coherency and the symbolic interplay and, and the, the deep teachings that are in a fairy tale. And you think, wow, whoever created that must have been really smart, you know, and, and been aware of these symbols. But no, they were probably were not aware of any of that. They just knew that this is what has to happen next. It sounds right. Yeah, she's supposed to prick her finger at this moment. Yeah, he's supposed to try three times to do it. It just doesn't feel right if he only tries twice. That the person doesn't necessarily have a conscious understanding of the numerological significance of the letter three, you know, of the number three, or of the prick of individuation or something like that, or the symbolic meaning of a dragon, they don't, they don't have to have a conscious understanding of that because the story has its own living being. And the same thing goes for rituals. So even though you can understand a ritual by decoding its symbolism, or you can understand something about it, you can't create it by constructing a sequence of symbols. You have to instead listen to what feels appropriate and right and maybe later you'll understand it on a symbolic level why it fits and why it works, but maybe you won't. So there's a little practical thing if you want to invent alternative birthday parties. But, you know, perhaps the solar calendar that, that we use to determine when your birthday is, maybe that's becoming obsolete. In Taiwan, they use the lunar calendar. So your birthday would be on a different date in the solar calendar every year. I mean, we have to really put everything on the table. Like, what do we celebrate and why? What's the big deal about a birthday? Maybe there are more important things to celebrate or to mark or to open at a certain stage in life. I mean, in a way, you know, that something is supposed to happen when you turn 16, that's imposing an artificial rhythm on something that might have its own biological rhythm. You know, maybe one boy is ready to be initiated into manhood when he's 14, and another one not until he's 20. 
So doing things by the numbers is uh, maybe part of the story that we're moving out of. Yeah, and maybe I myself have to put on the table the shyness of not being called as the one to make a suggestion, but then suggest it anyhow. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just calling bullshit, you know? And you can do that sometimes with humor, mm -hmm. like I did at the DMV, mm -hmm. and, and also speaking to that part. The important thing is to speak to the part of other people that also are dissatisfied mm -hmm. and think that it's fake. It's like, come on, guys, you don't really believe in this. We don't really want to do this. And that might be, but it's hard to avoid offending some people, I think, who feel, because to leave the old story behind is frightening. So anything that suggests that transition will be a threat. And I think that's unavoidable. In a way, it's almost, you could say, normal or proper that we cling as hard as we can to who we've been until the ritual visits us, the initiation visits us. We develop muscles by that clinging. So to say that you should surrender, but can you actually surrender willfully? Or is it more true that you are surrendered because you just can't hold on anymore? If you tell people to surrender, what they'll end up doing is fake surrender. They think they're surrendering, but they're still holding on to something. For me, the surrender happens when I just can't do it anymore. You know, the, the, the willful surrender, there's still a bit of control there. There's still a bit of not fully letting go. So this is something that we can't issue an instruction set to accomplish. And people want, people want okay, what should I do now? Instructions are useful for some things, like the instruction of listen for the ring of truth. That's useful. But in some situations, especially when we're entering totally new territory and a new self and going through a kind of a death process or a birth process, then no instruction, no map at certain moments is going to help you. Which is a relief in a way. You don't have to do it right. The capacities that you need to successfully pass the initiation will come to you when they're needed. They're in you already. That's what I've learned. And learned again in the last month. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One way to learn to discover, to bring in new rituals, is when you experience one, to really just take it in fully and to become familiar with the feeling of a real ritual. Because when you've internalized that, it becomes a call, I think, and an attunement to the field of ritual. So I guess it's just to, when you're fortunate enough to be gifted with such a thing, to really receive it with gratitude and to be thankful that the ritual has come to you. Yeah, thank you for asking me to do this. Thank you. This has been 
a new and ancient story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that, I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site. None of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, You can also subscribe for free. Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.